Uh, Luke 9, 28 through 36. And this is how the text reads. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. We're talking about Jesus here. About eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became a dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Pray with me, church. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus and God. As Kayla sang the song, I'm here. I'm making myself available. I'm praying that you would, uh, that you would speak through me. I'm praying for all the people that are gathered in the room. I'm praying for those who are following along with us on- online. God, I'm praying that you would give us eyes to see and words to hear what you want to say to your bride today. God, remind us today that we are your beloved. Move in this room through your word and in power. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to talk to you today, church, about the word and power, about the law and the prophets, about grace and the supremacy of Christ. For the last 25 years, I have taught, the ki- I have taught kids the Bible in some capacity. We were talking about like small groups or Sunday school or in um, children's churches or vacation Bible schools, things like that. And uh, honestly, one of my favorite things about teaching kids in a church setting is uh, that they answer Jesus to pretty much every question. Uh, I mean, like you can ask a group of, uh, of church kids, you can be like, okay, kids, uh, who created the world? And they'll be like, Jesus. And you'd be like, uh, who, uh, who saved us from our sins? Jesus? You'd be like, okay, who in the room could build the biggest Lego tower? And they'll be like, probably Jesus. I mean, I I love it. You know, it's like, it's very uh, innocent, pure. It's uh, holy. Like, it's it's honestly, it's one of my favorite things because uh, most of the time, it's the right answer. I mean, I've never seen Jesus build a, a Lego tower. But as the son of a carpenter, I imagine he could build a pretty good one if he tried. In the, uh, in the early 1990s, the self-help guru, Tony Robbins, had an encounter with Mother Teresa. Now, at this time in the 90s, Tony Robbins' career was just kind of taken off. Uh, he was highly sought-after speaker. He had written some best-selling books. It was a stage where he was just kind of bigger than life. And uh, Mother Teresa, at the same time, was in her early 80s, and she was living in Calcutta, serving the poorest of the poor, which is what she believed that God had called her to do, and she was doing the best she could to help a lot of sick people uh, die with dignity. 
But both Tony Robbins and Mother Teresa were famous. They, they were both known uh, all around the world. And uh, Tony Robbins wanted to know uh, the secret of Mother Teresa's success. And so in this encounter, he asked her, and this is uh, how that conversation went. He said, uh, how did you manage to become so successful, so famous? She looked up at him, smiled, and said confidently, Jesus. No, I mean, how is it that you run such a huge religious institution, serve the most desperate people, travel constantly, and yet touch so many people, he continued. Jesus, she said again with a big smile. No, Robin said, I'm asking how you do it, still not satisfied. How do you continue to live this life, speak to millions, win the respect of the world, and manage to be one of the greatest people in the world, even in the history of the world? Jesus, Mother Teresa answered once again with a beaming smile. Robin shook his head and turned away, totally mystified, because he had no idea what she was talking about. Church, it doesn't matter if you are 8 or 80. Jesus is the answer. We never outgrow Jesus. We can never have too much Jesus. Jesus is the hinge upon which all of history swings. I think one of the mistakes that we make as we get older is that we lose some of that childlike wonder. We lose some of that childlike innocence and we begin to look for answers in other places. I mean, like most of us know where we should turn and yet we keep going back to other things trying to do more research. I want to ask you this question today, and I get this question from a lawyer named E.J. Gaines, and here it is. To who or what do you give your secret devotion? To who or what do you give your secret devotion? And all I mean by that is, when nobody's watching, what do you turn to for peace? When nobody's watching, where do you turn for hope? Like, what are the things that you're doing right now to cope in private that if those things were made public, you would be ashamed of? Church, I, I don't know what your thing is, okay? And to be just blatantly honest with you, I, I really don't want to know. Like, I don't want you to tell me out loud. But I do want to tell you this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Stop looking in the shadows for sustenance that can only be found at the cross. Do you hear what I'm saying? Stop looking in the shadows for sustenance that can only be found at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's always been the answer. He will always be the answer. Our kids have been trying to tell us this this whole time. Jesus was the perfect mixture of grace and truth, of word and power, of law, and prophet. Now, the story of the transfiguration is a pretty unique one. Uh, especially in the Gospels, we rarely see Jesus take this kind of form. Jesus asked his closest friends, uh, his inner circle, if they would join him for a time of prayer on the top of what most people believe to be uh, was Mount Tabor. But when they got up there and they started to pray, uh, it, was, it was different. Things began to happen. You know, years ago, uh, I went to visit. This was back when my mama Bud was still alive. I went to visit her in the nursing home. 
and I was trying to be a good grandson, trying to help her get some exercise, and so uh, I was walking with her down the hallway at the nursing home, and we were walking arm in arm. And as we're walking, I'm pretty sure I'm on this side, and my little brother Derek is on her other side, and we're kind of helping her. And then all of a sudden, uh, she leans over, and she whispered in my ear, she goes, uh, Brock, something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. I go, okay, I have no idea what that is. And so we take two or three more steps, and then her pants, underwear and all, just fall to the ground. Needless to say, it was unexpected. I was caught off guard. So were Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration. They had prayed with Jesus many times. Many times Jesus had asked them, let's go up on this mountain and pray together. But nothing like this had ever happened. They found themselves on the top of the mountain and, and Jesus began, began to pray. And as he was praying, he started to glow. It was like the glory of the Father was just shining really brightly through the sun. And they had never seen uh, anything like this. The Bible says that his face, became, it's called his face became transfigured. Like his face began to change. And his whole body, his clothes became this really bright, dazzling white. And if that's not enough, church, there were visitors. Moses and Elijah, who had lived 1,000, 1,300 years before this moment, they appeared on the scene and they were having a discussion with Jesus, the Bible tells us they were talking with Jesus about his departure. They were talking to him about, about the cross. Now, I love the idea that God the Father may have sent Moses and Elijah to encourage his son before he went to the cross. Moses represented the law. He represented the word. Moses knew what it took to lead people on an exodus. He knew what it took to lead people to freedom. And so I imagine Moses was there to remind Jesus who he was and to reassure him, you too will complete the, the task that God has called you to. In the same way I led Israel on their exodus, you will lead the whole globe on its exodus. And then Elijah is there too. And I think Elijah represented the prophets and the power. I mean, Elijah, in his short life, Elijah saw some things. He saw God do some incredible things. There's at least one time on Mount Carmel when the whole rest of the world had turned their backs on God, and Elijah remained faithful. So I think God may have sent Elijah to his son to remind Jesus of the power that was within him and to reassure him that all of heaven was watching and that all of heaven was on his side. Now, to be clear, church, I'm not trying to imply that Jesus didn't know who he was, that he had lost sense of his identity, or that he had somehow, you know, forgotten how powerful that he was. All I'm saying is, it never hurts any of us to be reminded. I mean, is it possible that Jesus needed to be encouraged too? Moses and Elijah encouraged Jesus with the word and in power. All it means to encourage somebody, when we encourage somebody, all we do is that that word encourage literally means to give people courage. I think God sent Moses and Elijah to talk to his son to give him courage to walk the way of the cross. Now, it's my guess that some of you in the room today may need encouragement as well. I think some of you may need to be encouraged with the word and some of you may need to be encouraged in power. Like some of you might need
be reminded who you are, and some of you may need to be reminded what you're capable of. And so I'm going to try, I'm going to try to do that now. First, I want to encourage you with the word. If you have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, you are a child of God. Your redemption was bought with a price, and you are a co-heir to the kingdom. You are who God says you are, nothing more and nothing less. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you now for a second, church, and tell you this. On your bad days, this world is going to try to drag you down. On your bad days, people are going to try to remind you of who you used to be. They will call you by old names. They did the same thing to Jesus. Mark preached on it last week. The reason Jesus talking about how he didn't have power and authority in his hometown is because the people in his hometown, when they looked at Jesus, they'd go, uh, isn't, that, isn't that just a boy from Nazareth? the son of Mary and the carpenter, who does he think he is to be doing the things that he's doing? On my bad days, I hear the same thing. I hear, hear, hear people going, it, Brock, it, isn't, that, isn't that the poor boy from Maynable whose dad was a worthless drunk? Who does he think he is to stand up before people and to, and to preach the gospel, to talk about the things that God has shown him? If you hear the same voice as I do, if you hear those same things on your bed, this is how I want you to respond to those words. I want you to say this. I want you to say, my friends, you speak about who I was. The word tells me who I am. You speak about who I was. The word tells me who I am, and I am a child of God. My redemption was bought with a price. I am a co-heir to the kingdom. I am who God says I am, nothing more and nothing less. Church, at, uh, oftentimes I think we need somebody like Moses to come along and to encourage us with the word, to remind us who we really are. Now, if you'd allow me to, I want to encourage you in power. John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said this to his followers. It's a difficult text. At least challenging in the sense that I think the church doesn't get it right. And this is what the text says. Jesus talking to his disciples said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Church, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, there is nothing you can't do. I don't even know if it's good English. Might be a double negative. There is nothing you can't do. Inside of you is God-given, Holy Spirit-driven, miracle-working power. The disciples led thousands of people to Christ. So can you. The disciples cast out demons. So can you. The disciples had all the authority of both heaven and earth So do you. I want to encourage you today, church, stop playing small. For the sake of society, stop playing small to fit in. Use the gifts and talents that you have been given. Pray bold prayers. Dream bold dreams because we follow a bold Savior. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, you can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens you. All things. Doesn't say some things. It says all things. I was reading um, Carlos Whitaker's book this week. His latest book's called Interwild, and he was talking about uh, in the book about one of the things that he sees in the church right now that he kind of takes issue with is he's like, you know, when people have certain struggles, he's like they will pray until that struggle becomes manageable, and then they'll stop praying. I think it's really interesting. So basically what he's saying is, you know, somebody's like struggling with an addiction or something like that, and he's like they'll pray against that addiction until their addiction becomes manageable, and they can still function and nobody knows about it, and then they'll stop praying. Or if people are praying against some disease or something like that, it's like they'll pray against that disease until they feel like they can manage it. Like that disease doesn't keep them from being able to go to work. Their illness doesn't keep them from being able to do the things they want to do. But that's the point when they stop and he's going, this is ridiculous. The church, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Why do we settle for some? Why do we not pray until we become conquerors? Until we become overcomers, until the whole thing, until the mission, the goal, the abundance is found, and it is complete. I think we all sometimes need people like Elijah to remind us of the power that is in us, to remind us of what we are capable of. This resonate with anybody. Anybody in the room feel like you need to hear the encouragement of, of Moses or Elijah? Like, which one do you need more? I'm going to open the room up. And if you're watching online, I just want you to, to write it in, in the comment section. But right now, today, where you're at, do you feel like you need to be more encouraged with the Word or more encouraged in power? Say it now. If it's the Word, say the Word. If it's power, say power. I'd like to hear it just to know that the Spirit's moving. Right on. I heard a lot of power. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. I think it's very interesting. I'm like, if even Jesus needed to be encouraged, how much more do, do we need to encourage one another? Like, if even Jesus needed to have friends who would come alongside him and give him courage to walk the road God was calling him to walk, how much more do we need friends to come alongside us to encourage us to walk the path that God is calling us to? On the top of Mount Tabor, Jesus was glowing. And I think he was going because he knew exactly who he was and he knew exactly what he was capable of. And because of this moment on the transfiguration, he was prepared for the storm ahead. Jesus was the perfect mixture of grace and truth, of word and power, of the law and the prophets. Now, I told you all at the beginning of this thing that I was going to talk about the supremacy of Christ, and I'm going to do that here now just for a moment. But this is what I want you to think about. So Jesus is on top of that mountain, Mount Tabor, come to be known as the Mount of Transfiguration, aptly so. And he's standing on the mountain, and he is on top of that mountain with some of the greatest men history has ever known. I mean, Moses is there. Moses received the law. The Bible says Moses met with God face to face during his earthly days. Elijah is there. Elijah didn't even die. He goes to heaven on a chariot before the end of his life. Peter's there. Peter is the rock that the Christian church is going to be built upon. James and John are there, these incredible leaders of the early Christian church who both wrote multiple books, most people believe, in the New Testament. And yet, even in the midst of all these heroes, Jesus was the only one glowing. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one shining. What, what, what I'm trying to say, church, is there's nobody 
on the top of that mountain who was wondering who the star of the show was. They knew it was Jesus. They knew, as the Bible says, something greater than Moses was there. Something greater than Jonah was there. Something greater than Elijah was there. Someone greater than Peter was there. So Moses and Elijah come, they talk to Jesus, and then all of a sudden they're gone. And once they leave, I imagine that the disciples are just kind of standing around in this shocked, you know, stunned silence. That is uh, until Peter, you know, Peter can't keep his mouth shut. And so uh, as Peter often does, he speaks up in, into the situation and he goes, uh, he goes uh, he's talking to Jesus and he says, I think it's good that we were here. And he says, uh, I think we should, maybe we should build three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, even in the story that I, I'm reading, which is from Luke's version of the text, it's the one that we led with in the sermon this morning, Luke's narrating the text, and Luke fits into this verse, this little caveat. Peter says those things, and then Luke says, but Peter didn't know what he was saying. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. And I think the reason Luke said that is because Peter was trying to make a monument. Jesus was trying to start a movement. Peter wanted to build some buildings to memorialize the past, but Jesus was trying to build a bridge into the future. Let me show you what I mean. Everything that Jesus does, he does on purpose. Everything is intentional. I think even down to the people that he invited up on that mountain to pray with him. I think everybody who was there was there for a reason. First, I think Jesus invited James because James was going to pick up the mantle of the law and the word. I think it's like as they're on, the, on Mount Tabor, I think it's like Jesus takes the baton from Moses and he passes that baton to James, and James becomes the carrier of the word into, into the future. We all know in the book of James, what does James say? James says, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this way I think Moses represented the pre-resurrection word, and James was going to be the carrier of the post-resurrection word. And then I think he invited John because John was going to pick up the mantle of the prophets and of power. It's like at the transfiguration, they're standing on the mountain. It's like Jesus takes the baton from Elijah, who had seen God do so many incredible things, and he passes that baton to John, who we later know writes the book of Revelation and tells us in, in the book of Revelation that though Jesus came the first time in peace, he's going to come the second time in power. John saw prophecies and power that the rest of the world was never allowed to see. He saw things, had experiences that the rest of the world was never allowed to see or to experience. In this way, I think Elijah represented pre-resurrection power. John became the carrier of post-resurrection power. Something was happening on that mountain, church. It's, it's like as, uh, you know, the church often is referred to as, like one of the phrases that the church is described as, it's described as the body of Christ. So I'm thinking that as Jesus is, is being transfigured and his face is changing, his body is being reshaped, 
so is the body of Christ. There's a holy transition happening in preparation for the coming Christian church. At the transfiguration, Jesus was building a bridge from the past into the future. Now this brings me to Peter. Why was Peter there? Especially he says something ridiculous, something that's so, so off that the, the uh, writer wants to be clear. He didn't know what he was talking about. Peter often did that. He said stuff and he didn't know what he was talking about. So what was Peter, what was Peter doing, doing there? Why did Jesus invite Peter? I mean, I think the rest of it tracks. I really think if you study it, that'll make sense to go, okay, we see uh, Moses to James, Elijah to John, but what about Peter? I think Peter was there to represent grace, and grace didn't have an Old Testament counterpart. I think Peter's there to represent grace, and grace didn't have an Old Testament character to compare it to. Like the grace of Jesus, this was a new thing. This was a new piece being added to the equation. This is what I mean. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but Peter was the first person to receive the grace of the resurrected Jesus. Peter was the first person to receive grace from the resurrected Jesus. Have any of y'all like me ever wondered, you know, why does Jesus refer to Peter as the rock that he's going to build the church on? I mean, that's such a strong, what a great honor. He goes, Peter, you're going to be the rock that the whole Christian church is built upon. Why? Why is he considered the rock? Church, I think it was Peter's failure that made him the foundation. I think it was Peter's failure that made him the foundation. Let me explain. You all know the story. Right before Jesus dies on the cross, Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And then Peter dies, and Jesus never has that chance to apologize to him, to check back in with him, to make sure that they are okay. Jesus is gone, and Peter don't know what else to do. Before he was called as a disciple, he was a fisherman. And so after Jesus dies, he don't think he's no lo uh, any longer a disciple. And so he goes back to fishing. And so while they're all out on the boat, this is in the latter part of the book of John, he and several of the other disciples are out on the boat fishing, and a man appears on the shore, and they're not catching anything, and the guy calls out to him and says, cast on the other side of the boat. They cast on the other side of the boat. They drag it in. There's fish everywhere. At this moment, the disciples, I believe it's John, who's known as the beloved disciple, I think John recognizes that it's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And so John says to the folks on the boat, he's like, I'm pretty sure that that, on the, I think that that's Jesus. Peter doesn't even wait to think about it. He doesn't take a, a second thought. He throws off his outer garment, puts on a jumps in the, the sea, and swims as fast as he can to get to Jesus. Because for Peter, when he sees Jesus on that shore, and this is a chance for him to apologize. This is a chance for him to restore that which was broken. This is a chance for him to be forgiven. And so he swims to the shore as fast as he can. Jesus is there, and he takes some of the fish that he caught, and he makes them all breakfast. And then Peter apologizes uh, to, to Jesus for, for the situation, and they're eating together. And then you all know the story, because then Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, I do, and he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these? Ten, ten of my lambs. Church, what we see when we're reading that story is the first sign or picture of what it looks like for a broken person to go to Jesus, to own their sins, and to be forgiven by Jesus' grace. To be forgiven 
by his work on the cross. If you want to know why Jesus is the rock that the church is built upon, it's because he's just the first one in this long line of millions who went to Jesus, owned their sin, and received grace and forgiveness from the resurrected Savior. To me, it's like, that, that, that's, all, that's all it is. That's what's going on. He's the first one. He's the foundation. That grace is then what the rest of the church is built upon. Man, I love that picture. Because when, when Peter, in the book of Acts, when the early church really begins to thrive, I'm thinking nobody is trying to come in who has done anything as bad as Peter's done and denying Jesus publicly three times and received that forgiveness. And so the church was full of that grace and sharing that grace amongst the world. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, if you are a hundred times, or if you were a hundred times worse than you are now, your sin would still be no match for God's grace and his mercy. How crazy is that? I know some of you are in here and you're like, you got a lot of shame in your life. If you were a hundred times worse than you are right now, your sin would still be no match for his grace, for his mercy. Come to him, all you who are weary. Bow before him. Own your mistakes. Receive your forgiveness. Peter showed us the way. Made him the foundation of the church. Follow in his footsteps. My wife made this great observation this week about this text. Like Mark said, I've been thinking about this story because it's a crazy story. I've been thinking about it and talking about it for the last couple of weeks, just trying to figure out what angle. There's so many different directions that uh, I thought I could go. And, uh, and, and Bethany drew this conclusion, and, and I love it. You'll remember that when God gave Moses the law, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai, and the Bible says that God, with his own finger, wrote the law on the two stab tablets, on a stone, and then Moses descended the mountain, and when he came back down from the mountain, the people were worshiping a golden calf. And so he took these stones that he had been given, and he tossed them, and they shattered. And so Moses then had to go back to the top of Mount Sinai, meet with God again, ask God to give him the law again, and God did. Then he carried that law back down to the people, and that is, church, how God's law entered the world. Then here in the New Testament, we have Peter. Peter's name in Greek is Petros. Petros means stone or rock. So at the moment, Peter denied Jesus. The rock was broken. The stone was split. And then after Jesus' resurrection, and they have the encounter over breakfast, and Jesus forgave Peter, the stone was restored. And that is how grace entered the world. Church, cracked stones are at the center of both covenants. James carried the word. John carried the powder, the power. Peter carried the grace. Jesus fully embodied all of these different attributes. I think that's why he's glowing. I think it's interesting in uh, 1 John, John told Jesus' followers, he said, this is what I want you to do. You are, and this is true for all of you in the room too, he goes, I want you to be in the lot as Jesus is in the lot. We need to be in the light as Jesus is in the light. Most of the time when we teach that text, 
we think that John was talking about it metaphorically. But let's be real for a second, church. John had seen Jesus glow. Like he had seen Jesus light up. So when John says, I want you to be in the light as Jesus is in the light, he's saying, I want to see you all glow the same way Jesus glowed. And the only way that's ever going to happen, the only way you're ever going to leave those doors and be the real light of the world, walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, is if you know who you are, you know what you're capable of, and you know the depths of Jesus' grace. After Peter made this silly comment, a cloud, like even while Peter's still talking, a cloud came over the mountain, and the disciples were all very frightened, and a voice spoke out of the cloud and said, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Very similar to what we hear God say to Jesus at his baptism, except that Jesus' baptism, the voice spoke out of the cloud and said, spoke directly to Jesus and said, this is my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now he's speaking to the disciples who are on that mountain, and he's speaking to the future early church, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Church, Jesus is the answer. He has always been the answer. He will always be the answer, and our creator and our kids have been trying to tell us this this whole time. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and God, we thank you for your word. God, I even thank you for the strange stories, because sometimes when I open up your, this, this book, I need to be awakened from a slumber. Uh, I can become numb, and I believe that's true for these people too, and I pray that you would speak. I pray for the person in the room or the person online who needs to be encouraged in the word. I pray that you would remind them right now who they are. And I pray for the person in the room who needs to be encouraged in power. You would remind them right now what they are capable of. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. We thank you for Peter, whose example of of failure and finding you has shown us all the way of what it looks like for us to fail and find you too. God, I think it's possible that there's somebody in the room who needs to find you today, and I'm praying that they would. I'm praying that you would speak directly to their hearts and tell them that they haven't fallen too far to receive your grace and mercy because there's no such thing as too far from your grace and mercy. Move in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.